Well, good morning, Gateway family. Good to see all of you here this morning. And uh, I just want to reiterate um, the, the first thing that Ed mentioned, and just kind of more as a, as a family kind of talk. Uh, one of our core values is to invest in the next generation. And of course, that next generation begins with the children. And um, so in order for us to do that, friends, we all have to step up to the plate. As a church family, we've got to say we have a role to play. We have a responsibility. And I just want to encourage you to um, figure out what you can do to be a part of helping us move that along. The, the primary thing that we're focused on is, is the youngest grades, the youngest kids, to, to get that shored up. Um, so that we can have uh, moms and families being able to sit together in, in church and be able to focus their attention. And then we want to build up from that with, um, with the actual other children's ministries. And so just please be in prayer about that and take that seriously and, and jump in and be a part of, of uh, solving that problem for the glory of God. Well, I want to welcome you. I see a number of people visiting today. You're, um, you're certainly welcome. I'm glad to have you here. We, uh, as our habit, work our way through a book of the Bible. Uh, we believe that the Word of God is always relevant. We just need to jump in and find out how and what it is that God wants us to learn from that, and that is our practice. And we are right now in the book of Exodus. Now, I'll just, just say this up front. Um, many times when we come to you know passages of Scripture, uh, they can be positive, they can be negative in the sense of tone. Um, and we are, if you look at the, the heading here, I think well, it's not up there, it's in my screen back there, but if you look in your handout, um, it says, I will be known, which is the theme of the whole book. And then we're in this section, uh, chapter 32 through 34, which I've called sin and restoration. Well, we're in the sin section, okay? And the sin section means that what's going to be said is somewhat hard-hitting. And this is not your pastor necessarily being hard-hitting. This is God who is wanting to make sure we understand the sinfulness of sin. And um, God will resolve things as we move on, but I want you to be aware that's where we are right now, and we want to make sure that the Lord has his way with us. So I want to invite you to stand. We're going to read Exodus chapter 32, verses 15 through 35, and then we are going to pray and see what the Lord has for us today. Exodus chapter 32, verses 15 and following. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. 
As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate uh, to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And, what, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Lord, we come to a text like this. And we are overcome, Lord, with your holiness, your justice, your wrath. But Lord, we're also overcome with the the sinfulness and the foolishness of man in his sin, in his rebellion against you. And Lord, all of this is a picture of our hearts. And Lord, would you help us today as we interact with your text as we humble ourselves before you, that we would have hearts and ears to listen and that you would have your way with us. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? What we, um, what we are not, Lord, would you make us? And Lord, would you allow me as your messenger to simply be faithful, to expose and press and to reveal your truth to your people. And Lord, to those who are in uh, the presence of my voice, that, that your will, that your gospel, and that your son would be glorified. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen. Now, friends, one of the things I think we struggle with is confrontation. In a sense, it's a bad word for most people, isn't it? 
Now, there are some people who just enjoy taking the mantle of confrontation. They love to, to tell people off. They like the power. They like the authority. They like the, the prestige that they think comes with it. But I think most people, when faced with the need for confrontation, truly struggle. So they might respond to the confrontation in one of the following ways. Some, some just ignore the problem or the issue as if it doesn't even exist. Just tune it out of their minds. Others shy away from it. They say nothing and hope that it goes away by itself. Many look to avoid being personally involved. Maybe they'll ask for someone else to actually do the work for them or even manipulate them into doing it. But most who are trying to live godly lives and serve the Lord look to proceed with confrontation, but with reluctance and much prayer. I know as, as a pastor and an elder, uh, we don't get together and say, we get to confront someone today. Yippee! No, it's, it's a reluctance. We just like, oh, this is the last thing that we want to do. And yet, we know there's a responsibility put on our shoulders, and therefore we must. And we do so with much prayer. Now, friends, this is the reality. And when we come uh, to our text today, we find that there comes a time when what has taken place is so severe, it's so vile, it's so offensive, that you are driven quickly to a righteous confrontation. Now, if you remember early in the story of Moses, when, when Moses is, is really is called by God initially, you, you remember how, how timid and insecure he was, so to speak, asking questions like, you know, when I go before Pharaoh, you know, what shall I say? And, and who shall I say sent me? And, and, and why would they even listen to me? But Moses has grown, hasn't he? I mean, Moses has been developed by God for this very moment. He's seen God's hand at work. He has spoken for him many times. He was there being the, the verbal uh, representative of God with Moses, talking about the plagues and seeing God's word being fulfilled. He saw God's power as he parted the waters of the Red Sea and destroyed the Egyptian army. And he saw God provide the water and the food in the wilderness. And he experienced God's favor when the people of Amalek came and sought to, to attack Israel. And more recently, we've seen him in the presence of God on the top of the mountain receiving the commandments, but not just that, but the, the book of the covenant that, that fleshes out the Ten Commandments. And then more recently, the instructions for the tabernacle. He has had this intimate uh, relationship with God in his very presence. Let's just say it this way. Moses, having been in the presence of God, has been affected by his holiness. And now he's descending from the mountain into a cesspit of Israel's religious idolatry and immorality. All done to celebrate Israel's deliverance from Egypt by the hand of Yahweh. Now, friends, this text is very clear as to the extent of their sin. Three times we find in this passage that what Israel is doing is described as a great sin. Look at verse 21 such a great sin. 
Verse 30, you have sinned a great sin. Verse 31, the people have sinned a great sin. Now, when we understand that the word of God is breathed out by God, but it's also a piece of literature, we understand that the the author, Moses here, is wanting us to catch something, that what is being experienced here is Israel's great sin. And now that Moses comes down to the camp and sees this great sin, he is given over to this righteous confrontation. And so this morning we want to see how the mediator confronts the sinfulness of sin. We see that in Moses and how he interacts with Israel this morning. And again, remind ourselves that all this is taking place right after Moses has left the top of the mountain communing with God, being there for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's passed the test, if you remember, to identify with the people of God. And to that end, we see him as a righteous but imperfect mediator. Now, having come down from the mountain, having been in the holy presence of the Lord, what he sees, he sees from the vantage point of the holiness and the righteousness of God. And what we see now is the righteous mediator of Israel coming down to deal with Israel's sin. So this passage will reveal to us the righteous activity of Israel's mediator, but also the serious nature of Israel's sin. And so there's four ways that Moses confronts sin. First of all, he confronts sin with a burning hot anger. Our text begins by telling us that Moses descended from the mountain with two tablets of the testimony, and on his way down, he meets up with Joshua. If you're remembering chapter 24, he left him there, telling the elders to wait, but Joshua went up a little ways with him, and Moses goes up into the cloud. And what we want to pay attention to as we go through these verses, verses 17 through 20, is what was heard, what was seen, and what was done. First of all, what was heard. When Moses and Joshua get closer to the camp, Joshua, being a military man, took notice of the noise. And he's thinking to himself, what is this noise? It sounded like the noise of war. Now, remember, Joshua has not been privy to the conversation that God has had with Moses up the mountain. In the previous verses, God is interacting with Moses about the sinfulness of of what's happening down uh, down at the bottom of the mountain, but Joshua doesn't know what God has been interacting with Moses about. So what he hears sounds like the noise of war. But Moses responds poetically saying, it is not the sound of shouting, for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. He is aware because of God's revelation at the top of the mountain that something else is happening down here. It doesn't sound like anyone's winning a battle. It doesn't sound like there's anyone losing a battle where people are saying, you know, run away or retreat or the people are weeping. No, the sound that they're hearing was the sound of a party, of a celebration, of a carnival, if you like. It was as if the camp of Israel had turned into a giant frat house party. They were all in 
with their worship, a loud, full-blown party in honor to Yahweh, represented by this golden calf and celebrated by immorality. Now, what a shock to the system that must be to hear that this is happening. But notice now what is seen, verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. They saw the idolatry. They saw the dancing. In other words, the immorality, the dancing, the partying, all under the guise of the worship of Yahweh. Remember, Israel isn't saying we want to worship an idol of Egypt. They're saying we want to worship Yahweh, but we want to worship him in the way that we learned in Egypt. And so we're going to create an idol that's going to represent him, violating his commands that he had already revealed to them. And so what what he sees was the great sin the Israelites committing by blaspheming the name of the Lord, by going against what he says and doing what they want to do, and yet doing it in his name. And Moses' anger burned hot. So this is what they heard, what they saw, and then what they what was done now. Here we, here we have some lessons. Now Moses' burning hot anger reflected the burning wrath of the Lord we saw in verse 10 where God wanted to pour out his burning hot wrath to consume Israel. And now Moses is a reflection of the holiness of the Lord. I just want to pause here. This is what happens when we immerse ourselves in our relationship with the Lord. When we place ourselves under his word, we are becoming more and more like him in our thinking, in our behavior, in our outlook. So that when we step out in the world, the the, the sin that is there shocks us. We're not dull to it. We're, We're sensitive to it. Why? Because we are reflecting the holiness of God that is at work in us. It is one thing to be told that Israel was behaving in this immoral and idolatrous manner, but it's another thing to hear it and to see it happening with your own eyes. It was far worse than Moses could have imagined. And we might be tempted to think that what happens next is all the result of Moses just, you know, losing the plot. He's so angry, he's out of control. But friends, that is not what is happening in this text. Notice what Moses does with the two tablets. And notice where this takes place. These two tablets, we're told earlier, were the work of God, written by God himself. They were the two identical copies uh, uh, of the Ten Commandments written on both sides. In other words, they were the written record of God's covenant with Israel. But now we read... And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Now hear this. This is not him getting angry and his angry just kind of out of control. He's breaking the tablets and these tablets signify that Israel had broken their covenant with the Lord. Now see, sometimes when we get a passage like this, we're more concerned about the tablets than we are about the condition of Israel. How could Moses do that? Oh, he was doing it deliberately, just like the prophets of old would do, using 
physical illustrations to communicate spiritual truths. And so this was a visible illustration of the state of their relationship with God. They have broken their covenant with him, and their relationship is now in ruins. And friends, we must see that the nature and the essence of our sin is is on display here. That when we sin uh, against God, we are violating his very nature. We're we're opposing his nature and character. We are are stamping on this covenant that he has made with us. And too often, we drift into this habit of only viewing our sin as uh, through the lens of how it affects other people when the real issue is how it offends a holy God. So in that sense, it doesn't matter what society thinks. What matters is what God thinks. See, the real issue with our sin, the heart of the matter, the horror of our sin, is that when we sin, we're offending the very God who made us. So our communion with him is shattered when the sin of idolatry enters our lives. Secondly, I want you to notice the calf. What are we to make of what happens with the golden calf here? This is kind of unusual, isn't it? He took the calf that they had made, he burned it with fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Now there is another kind of allusion here to what happens with someone that that is being accused of adultery. The, 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 The priest would make a concoction, he was to drink it, and if he survived, then he was not guilty. If he didn't survive, then he died. You know, there's this whole idea of drinking something here. But I want you to think about this. This is a powerful and experiential illustration of the impotence of their newly crafted idol. This is our God. This is what they said. This is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And Moses, what does he do? He melts it down. He grinds it into powder. And he puts it in the water. This very object that you've made, this this precious object with beautiful, precious gold that you thought was beautiful, that you sing about, that you danced around, that you worship, is nothing. It's empty. It's worthless. It's powerless. It's filthy. Compared to the God who parted the waters of the Red Sea, this idol is less than nothing. It is the grit in your drink. It is what you expel in the morning. That's what God thinks about your idol. That's pretty graphic, isn't it? And it's pretty experiential. This is what God thinks about your idolatry. And so Moses' burning hot anger is justified. It is a righteous burning hot anger. Secondly, Moses confronts sin with a penetrating question. Verse 21, and Moses said to Aaron, what do these people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? Now, Moses' question is somewhat sympathetic, isn't it? Had Moses experienced the people kind of turning against him and pressuring him? Yes, we've already seen that so far. They have grumbled. They have complained. There actually was, if you remember, a rebellion. But that doesn't remove Aaron's responsibility to lead Israel while Moses is up the mountain with the Lord. Moses' question seems to assume that the people overwhelmed Aaron, rebelled against his leadership, and ran off into their idolatry. And we know that such a scenario is only a little bit true. 
but it helps us to see how horrified Moses is about the state of things. Aaron, how could you let this happen? I mean, what gives? And what Aaron gives back to Moses is a truly pathetic answer, isn't it? That seeks to duck any responsibility. And it's an answer that we know well. And one we often use is the tactic of blame shifting. It's the oldest trick in the book to get yourself out from under being responsible for your sins. You shift the blame to someone or to something to say, it's not my responsibility. Friends, that is naturally in us. Now, we might learn it to do it better, but we don't have to learn it. I mean, that child who, you know, gets into the, into the I don't know what you might want to say, the peanut butter or maybe, you know, the, the, some kind of a chocolate and they come out and it's all over their face. You know, what did you do? I didn't do anything. It was the dog that did it, you know. It's naturally in us. Now, what kind of ways... What tools does Aaron use now to shift blame? There's three of them that we find here. As if one wasn't good enough, he wants to make sure he's got himself covered. First of all, the people are to blame. You know, Moses, you know what they're like. He says, let not the anger of the Lord burn hot. You know the people that they're set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... We don't know what's become of him. It was the people's fault. They made me do it. Moses, you know what they're like with all their grumbling and complaining and rebelling. What was I supposed to do? They're out of control. They're to blame, not me. The next one is a little bit more subtle. It's not the people made me do it. He's actually saying, Moses, you're at fault. This is your fault. Catch this. It's a little bit more subtle, verse 23. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Moses, if it hadn't been for you taking so long coming down from the mountain, none of this would have happened. You understand you're responsible for this? If you'd been here sooner, there would be no golden calf. The people wouldn't have rebelled. But because you took so long, I mean, what do you expect? The next one is to shift the blame to his circumstances. We read this and we laugh, don't we? So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. I mean, if God has a sense of humor, this is one of the places where it's found. And I think he does. He wants us to see how ridiculous his response is. Moses, I admit that I did collect the people's gold. I did throw it into the fire. But you know what? I had no idea that this calf would just jump out. Boom. It's amazing. Now, if I were to put this argument into modern-day context, it might sound something like this. Man, it was such a beautiful day. And so my friends and I, we just decided we wanted to go downtown and just 
just walk around and enjoy the beauty of the day. And as we were walking around downtown, we noticed that there are more people that were coming. And they must have said, you know, it's a nice day. Let's get out. Let's walk with one another. Let's our friends kind of gather together. But, but then something really weird happened. The people started to get angry and they began chanting things again and again. And then things got really scary because there were so many people and we were pushed by the angry crowd into a, a local store. And, and it was mad. It was hard because there were so many people in there. And we wanted to, we had to fight our way out and we finally got free and we started to run all the way home. And thankfully I got back to my house and went to the safety of my room and I couldn't believe it. The whole time I've been carrying three boxes of Nike shoes. I don't know how they got there, but here they are. And what's even more surprising is they're all my size and in the colors I wanted. I don't know how it happened. You see, it's that kind of foolish thinking, isn't it? We explain away what we have done, the things we have chosen to do. So friends, the example we're given here is threefold. We're confront, when confronted with our sin, great or small, rather than take full responsibility for our sinful thoughts, our actions and our behaviors will be quick to, quick to shift the blame. We'll blame others. We'll, we'll, we'll blame the accuser or the one who's asking the question or we'll blame our circumstances. And friends, when you think about it, it is, it is so ludicrous sometimes what the world offers as the shifting of blame uh, example. Uh, they're just ridiculous illustrations. And what's, but what's even sadder than that, friends, is this. The world seems to embrace, champion, and agree with such ludicrous assessments. To say to that person that I just give the illustration about, it's like, you know what? We understand why you did that. As if it's justified. As if it's okay. They no longer see such blame shifting as sin or even wrong. In fact, they believe that they have the right to speak and behave this way. And in their eyes, in their morality, it is a sin to speak out against or restrain their wicked and evil behavior. So don't confront me for my blame shifting. Your confrontation of my blame shifting is immoral. See how it works? That's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. They judge themselves by themselves, and they are not wise. There's a proverb, Proverbs 26, verse 12, that reminds us, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Those are chilling, aren't they? But friends, this is a reality. And don't think that you, being a Christian, are not guilty of blame shifting. Because you are. Unless, of course, someone else did it. Um, no, you are responsible. And this, this is what God is, is, is getting at. He's wanting Israel. He's wanting the initial hearers of this book, the second generation of Israel, still in the wilderness, to know that they are responsible for their own actions and not to shift the blame to anyone else or any other circumstance. 
So Moses confronts with a burning hot anger, with a penetrating question. Now he confronts with a justified judgment. Notice in verse 25 it says, And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, the people had broken loose. Israel's sin had broken loose. For Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? The people had broken loose. This word literally means to unbind the hair. In other words, it's, it's, a, a, it's, a, it's a picture, it's an illustration, it's a statement saying that Israel is now letting their hair down, we would say. They are letting loose of their inhibitions. So they held nothing back and pursued pagan worship without the restraints of holiness that God demanded. I mean, they they abandoned the commandments that God had given them, and they just went full bore into their pagan worship. And what we read is truly amazing, isn't it? The text tells us that Aaron had liberated them to break loose. Aaron justified their letting their hair down and acting and behaving this way. Aaron, clearly from the text here, is responsible to give them freedom to worship Yahweh in this manner that violated God's commands. Now, friends, it's true. Society is often pushing the envelope of rebellion against God. But sadly, the pushing of the envelope is often encouraged by those who stand in pulpits today who've given in to the winds of culture, who rationalize away God's commandments by seeking to compromise the truth with the world's demands. Now, friends, I want you to understand, there is always a pressure on my shoulders to do that. And if I'm ever guilty of it, please feel free to come and talk to me and confront me lovingly. But there is a huge pressure, and many have given into it. And friends, we see this so much today. Pastors and Christian leaders giving in to the new religions of the day, affirming things like the LGBTQ agenda, critical race theory, identity politics, and all that kind of stuff, knowing that the moment they're doing it, they're violating God's truth and bringing shame on the name of Christ. Seeking to please man and ultimately to undermine the gospel that they are duty-bound to proclaim. We're here to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The things that are happening in the world, they're nothing compared to that. The word of God is what people need. The gospel is what people need. And yet, so easily we get caught up with the winds of culture. And that's at a leadership level, but take it down. This is also true of those who are part of the body of Christ. We get caught up in those things. And friends, what is happening today is nothing new, and our text is evidence of that. Aaron surely knew better, but gave freedom to the people to pursue their pagan worship of Yahweh. And the result of their behavior is truly shocking, isn't it? The text says, to the derision of their enemies. Now let that settle in. What was God's purpose in working through Israel. What it was first of all, yes, for Israel. That Israel would know that he is Yahweh, that he is the I am that I am. But it was also 
so that the nations would know that he is the Lord. But what happened here because of Israel's idolatry and immorality is that the nations around them, having heard or somehow observed what was happening, were now mocking and ridiculing and enjoying the satisfaction of saying, and you thought you had a unique God that was better than our gods. Ha! Well, look at that. So much for him being the creator and the sustainer of this world. He is no different than the God that we worship. Friends, the world is always watching the conduct of the church, isn't it? And when there is a great sin among God's people, it is always severely hampered in its witness to the world. And when a well-known evangelical pastor or Christian leader is exposed for his or her great sin, adultery, homosexuality, abuse, embezzlement, murder, the world looks on and thinks to themselves, well, would you look at that? Why should I listen to anything Christians have to say? Clearly, they don't really believe what they preach. It's obvious that their ethics are no different than mine. And it says, I always thought Christians are just hypocrites who think that they are better than us. Now, we might be able to give a biblical answer to all that, but understand that the, the world doesn't have a theology of the Bible like we do. All they see is what they see and what they perceive. And much of the world, when they look at Christianity, looks at you and says, you think you're better than me. And your sin betrays what you think you are. And we know it's like, well, no, I don't think I'm better than you. Actually, we're all sinners, and I struggle, and I am very, very sinful, but I'm saved. I have a God who came, and he forgave me of my sin. The world doesn't understand that. They just view you as someone who thinks that you're better. And so they mock and they ridicule when we step out of line. Friends, this all runs contrary to the heart of what God is doing through Israel. He wanted the nations to see that he alone is God. But now Israel, by the idol worship and sexual immorality, was shaming Yahweh and making him a laughingstock to the nations. Something had to be done. You couldn't just leave it alone. And so God's, God's justice now breaks out. Israel's sin had broken loose, but now God's justice has broken out. Moses now makes a call for repentance by saying, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. He's standing in the camp. He's crying out to the people of Israel who are all you know, involved in some way, shape, or form with this pagan worship, this immorality, this idolatry. And he's saying, look, you are in sin, but there is a solution here, and it's repentance. Are you on the Lord's side or not? Do you belong to him or not? Do you recognize that he is your God or not? Come to me. And we're not told of all the people that came to him, except for the fact that we're told that these sons of Levi came. You can go into the 
little bit more of the history of Israel and find out that the sons of, or the, the tribe of Levi had been set apart because of some wickedness that they had done. But now they come and they come and they, they say, you know, we're going to be on your side. They are going to be ultimately the agents of God's justice. Now notice, as Moses speaks, he is saying uh, the judgment that is, is, to, is to take place is actually from the mouth of God. Notice verse 27, and he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel. This isn't Moses just coming up with some kind of justice. This is Moses reflecting what God has said needs to take place. Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Now, let's get the picture here. They are not let loose to go out and arbitrarily kill anyone they come into contact with. This is not go out and kill the general public. No, what we have here is a deliberate and serious searching out of the leaders and the propagators of the idolatry. And when they find them, they are to kill them. The goal here, friends, is to put idolatry to death. It's to root it out. Now, we might read this and scratch our heads saying, I thought Moses went before God to ask God to relent, that he wouldn't pour out his wrath and judgment on the people of, of Israel, in particular the nation of Israel. And this is where we need to make a very important, clear distinction. There's a difference between Israel's corporate sin and Israel's individual sin. In verse 14, which is what we looked at last week, God withholds his full-blown wrath against all Israel as a nation. Remember, he was going to say, I'm going, I'm going to destroy them, and I'm going to restart, I'm going to plus reset, and I'm going to start a nation with you. That was a, the whole nation. Now what's going on in verse 27 and 28 is God judging individuals for personal sin. The judgment is for those who instigated, who led the people into their sin of idolatry. God is here holding the rebel leaders accountable. So the sons of Levi go throughout the camp. Remember, the camp is between one and a half to two million people, and they sought to judge both the ringleaders as well as those who are continuing in the rebellion. Now, God is just in his judgment, but he's also merciful because only 3,000 people die at the hands of the sons of Levi. Compared to the size of Israel, it's a very small amount, isn't it? Many more were guilty, but only a few were judged for their sin. One Jewish commentator makes a remarkable statement about this text. He says, it is better that a few Israelites should perish than that the entire people should perish. Doesn't that remind you of what Caiaphas, the high priest, overseeing the trial of Jesus, actually says twice? Two different occasions. Better that one man should perish than that the entire people should perish. That was the basis of the legitimacy of actually putting Jesus to death, knowing that he was innocent. Better that he dies to solve that problem than the people rise up. My friends, we must consider that the reality and need 
for corporate repentance remains. There is a place for corporate repentance. When the church abandons the gospel, it should repent. When the church ignores the needy or fails to pray or sets up idols or turns political or gives into the culture, there should be a corporate confession for sin that is characteristic of the whole. It doesn't mean that everyone under the umbrella of the church is guilty, but there is some kind of a nature within the church that needs to be repented of. There's a place for that. Ed this morning prayed for our nation That we need to repent because of the the sin and the pursuit against God that is taking place. But that isn't everyone, but there's a tone in the context of our country. So there's a corporate repentance is right, and we seek to do that regularly. But not all who are part of the true church are necessarily personally guilty or responsible. But those who have been leaders, propagators, instigators of a pagan syncretism with Christianity and have a greater individual responsibility to repent. And they will be under God's specific and individual judgment. Now, friends, here's the lie of our present era, of our present culture. It is one thing to look back on the history of our country and say that the slave trade and racism has been a black mark on our country. Slavery has been a horrible reality through the history of the world, and in particular in our country, yes. But it's another thing to say that everyone who is of a particular skin color is now somehow guilty of that same racism today. Those are two completely different issues. But they want to merge them for their own political ideology and purposes. But you measure that with Scripture. It's like, no, 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 you can't do that. And that's what's happening here. God is holding individuals accountable for their sins. When a a country can and should corporately repent about any and all sin that has taken place within its borders, then we as a church should be willing to do the same. But it's only the people who have actually committed the sin that can be held accountable for their actions. They should repent before it. If it means they go to jail for what they've done, they should do that. But we've got to be careful here. We don't get sucked into the thinking of the world that wants to blur the lines. So when Moses sends the sons of Levi out to execute the guilty, they're carrying out God's justice to a rebellious and unrepentant people. Now, you may have caught this, but this had to have been an extremely difficult thing for the sons of Levi to do. And and the text is screaming at us, that is the case. Notice what it says in verse 27. The text tells us that they were to exercise justice on his brother, his companion, and his neighbor. These are all people that we built relationships with. That's the point. And then you go down to verse 29, and it says, we're told that they are to exercise justice at the cost of his son and of his brother. These are all people that are guilty. These are all people that have committed sin against Yahweh and now are being sought out to have justice and judgment satisfied. God's justice, friends, doesn't stop because you're family. God's justice doesn't stop because you're a friend. 
God's justice doesn't stop because you live in the same neighborhood. God's justice is carried out because you are guilty. You have rebelled against God and are unrepentant. Even when we come to Christ, our allegiance must be to God first. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 and verses 37 and following. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now hear this. This does not mean that we're to hate the people who are in our families. But it does mean that our love for them must submit to our higher love for God. So when our children wander and we're speaking for God's truth, we're standing for God. We're not saying, well, they're family, so they get a free pass. Why? Because we love God. He's the one that we're supposed to be honoring first. So not only has sin broken loose and God's justice is broken out, but also God's servants are broken in. Look at verse 29. Moses said, Today you have been ordained for this service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. As a result of their faithfulness to carry out the Lord's justice, the sons of Levi have proved themselves trustworthy and are ordained to a particular service to the Lord. The Levitical function begins here. This is where they're identified as being a a specific tribe that's going to carry out God's responsibilities here. I never knew that until we came here. And friends, what we must see here uh, as we kind of come to the, the end of this section are three unmistakable truths. We'll just say it briefly here, but hear this. Number one, that sin is costly. It's not going to be up on your screen. Sin is costly. It hurts. It harms not just yourself, but the very people you love. Secondly, sin always has consequences. You will be held accountable to God. Third, sin must be ruthlessly rooted out. It is like leaven that must be swept up and thrown out of the house. Now, we could spend all sorts of time digging further into that. We see from this text that it is costly, it has consequences, and it must be rooted out. That's what God is doing through Moses and these sons of Levi. Now, let's move on to this last way that Moses confronts sin. And it's this, with a sacrificial petition. Let me explain what's going on here. The first three points deal with Moses confronting the sinfulness of sin. Here, Moses seeks to confront this great sin by seeking atonement for the sin. Now, first of all, just note in verse 30 that that it's clear that there is a problem that must be dealt with here. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. Now, get this. You have all these people that have died. Judgment has been carried out, but Moses is still dealing with sin. So the, 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 the justice exercised on those, I want to say, leaders and ringleaders was necessary, but there's still sin in the camp that needs to be dealt with. So Israel has a great problem because they have sinned a great sin. And so Moses has an idea. Maybe 
Maybe he can make atonement for sin. Where does he get this idea from? Well, he's, he's overseeing sacrifices for the people when the covenant was made. He's experienced the way the Passover lamb made atonement for Israel. He's heard God talk about sin offerings and, and, and burnt offerings and drink offerings that all are, are being the, the, the means of provision of atonement that God talked about when he was talking about the activity of the priests in the tabernacle. So he's aware of the idea of atonement. He's aware of of the way that it comes. And so perhaps Moses himself can make atonement for the sin. I don't know. I'm going to go talk to the Lord and see what we can do. Now here, Moses isn't thinking so much about Israel's corporate sin to be atoned for. That took place in verse 14. He's now thinking about Israel's individual sin that needs to be atoned for. So we move from the problem now to the petition. Moses is willing, ultimately, to be blotted out on behalf of Israel. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So now Moses goes before the Lord and pleads on behalf of the people. He goes before the Lord and says, I'm willing to be blotted out of your book, the book you have written, that Israel's sin can be atoned for. But what is this book that he's referring to? Well, it's a couple of possibilities. It could be the book of life that's talked about in the New Testament a couple of times. Um, I think in Philippians, and then also in um, the book of Revelation, the book of life that records all those who are God's uh, children. But it could also be the book of the living, which we find listed for us in the Psalms, in a couple of different places. The book of the living with more just a record of people who are actively living at that point in time. The point here is there is a record. There's a, there's a divine record of, of, of people. And what Moses is saying is really something very similar to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 9 and verse 3. This is what Paul says. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That is no small statement. He's saying, I would, I, I am willing to suffer eternal damnation so that my people can have the liberty and the freedom of salvation. So, Moses, like the Apostle Paul, is willing to be blotted out of, the, of God's book, to be accursed, to be cut off, so that the sins of individual Hebrews can be atoned for. Ultimately, Moses is asking to be excommunicated and possibly executed on behalf of his people. It's a truly, deeply heartfelt petition. And I think as parents, this is the kind of thing we would say, Lord, take my life, Lord, not my children's life. But what's going on here is much deeper than that. This isn't just death. This is damnation. John 15.30 says, Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. So Moses, having had so many examples of animal sacrifice that would bring about atonement, he's willing to give it a try, and he goes to the Lord. But what is fascinating about this request is that it doesn't work. He has voluntarily offered himself to be a substitute for the people, but God 
refuses. And the question is, why? Moses has been honest. This is their sin. They have been sinful. They have committed abominations before you. He's, he's not kind of you know, shifting the, the severity of what's going on. He's been very honest about it. Why would God say no? And the reason God would say no is that Moses could not die for the people's sin because he himself was a sinner. He could only deal with his own sin. Now, he may have come closer to being sinless than most other people around him or before him, but he still was a sinner. And he was a sinner, and in order to make atonement for Israel's sin, he had to be perfect. God is willing to die for someone else's sin, but the, the only sacrifice he can accept is a perfect sacrifice, unstained by sin. Of course, we who've been around the church and the Word of God for a long time, we understand exactly where this is heading, don't we? Moses, as much as he loved his flock, could not atone for their sin. And then the last thing we read here is this. We read about this plague, verse 33. The final words of this text drive home the seriousness and the sinfulness of sin, God's unfinished justice and his great mercy. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. That's the seriousness of sin. Each person is individually responsible before God for their sin. There must be atonement. Secondly, it says, but now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. This is God's mercy that allows Moses and Israel to continue on the journey. They don't deserve it. But notice, he also says, nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. The consequences for their sin have not have yet to be visited. And here, here we need to be reminded of the fact that forgiveness does not necessarily remove consequence. You steal $100 from me and you come and you ask me for forgiveness, I can forgive you, but you still need to give me back the $100. And biblically speaking, fourfold, so that's $400, right? I mean, I'm just saying, that the, the, the point here is there's consequence for your actions. And what we read in verse 35 then kind of lands the plane to say, mm, and God's visiting his people. How? Notice what it says. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one Aaron made. Now, some commentators connect the drinking of the water with the effects, the residue of the golden calf as the means by which God brought about the plague on the people. We're not told that in Scripture, but there was a plague and thousands of people die as a result of this. Now the question, of course, that is begging is this. Who can atone? Who is the perfect man who can willingly die as an atoning sacrifice for mankind? to bring about forgiveness and restoration to God. We keep reading through the Bible over and over again. We find hints of who it might be. We, we're, we encounter characters that, that are godly, that are good, that, that God uh, uh, offers as, as wonderful examples. And yet they're all insufficient, aren't they? Until we get to the New Testament. And there we, we find the beginning of one particular book of the Bible, a prophet who points out this, this one who is walking in front of him. He says, behold, and I'm going to add a word here, 
behold the um, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's only one person, that's Jesus Christ. He is the perfect Son of God. This is what Scripture screams at us about. He was sinless. He was perfect. He was the only one who could satisfy God's ultimate wrath. And so his sacrifice on the cross was a sacrifice once for all. And even here in Exodus 32, the, the, the threads of Christ on the cross are working their way to show him as that one who can atone for the sin of Israel and bring restoration and reconciliation and forgiveness. Now I want to just hone in on two things as we come to our concluding thoughts. Two questions, really. One that comes right from the text, the other one that kind of flows from that first question. Question number one, who is on the Lord's side? This is a question asked in the midst of Israel breaking loose. And it's a question that we must be willing to ask. And it's a question that implies you have been living in sin, but you can choose to repent and return to the Lord. Are you on the Lord's side right now? When you think about the world that he has put you in, who or what group do you identify with the most? Is it the people of God? Or is it the world around you? Whose side are you on? Have you drifted? Have you bought into the world's thinking? Is there the noise of pagan worship in your camp, in your religious worldview, in your heart? Are you guilty of merging Christianity with the ideas of of the world and kind of somehow trying to make them work together? That is happening so much, friends. And it's not like it's anything new. It's happened for centuries. New era, new time, new struggles, same problems. Are you on the Lord's side? Or are you dabbling in the world? If you're dabbling in the world, you're not on the Lord's side. And and this could be a question that you answer and say, well, okay, I do have a few things that are in the world. And as a Christian, it's like sometimes that's what we struggle with. And we got we got to pull back and say, okay, Lord, where do I need to be? How do I need to do this? How do I submit to your lordship? How do I listen to what you say and do it? We get that. But there can also be, I'm identifying as a Christian, but my thinking and my values and, and, and my habits and my allegiances are actually for the world and not for the Lord. Friends, the question is for you. Whose side you're on? The world is drawing lines in the sand, isn't it? Have you noticed that? I mean, the past few years, they're just drawing lines in the sand. If you're not with us, then you are against us. This is what the world is saying in different ways. You're going to either be welcoming and affirming or hateful and bigoted. Those are the choices. What are you going to do? You're either going to be on the right side of history, which is what we're saying is true, or you're going to be on the wrong side of history, Which is it going to be? Because if you're on the wrong side of history, you're a loser. And they're just 
barraging Christians with all this stuff. You're going to embrace our morality or be ashamed of your conservative, spiteful, bigoted morality. And every Christian is going to have to ask themselves this question every day. Whose side am I on? And sadly, this question will also need to be asked when it comes to seeking to live faithfully in the church. Because when the church embraces the world's ideas and values, it puts God's true flock at odds with everyone else. Our text this morning describes people who are willing to talk the spiritual talk, but when it comes down to it, they couldn't walk the spiritual walk. And in today's world, we can talk the talk of our Christianity. We can use the lingo, we can refer to the Bible, we can talk about spiritual things, but actually have our allegiance in the world while at the same time spewing out theology, ideology that flows from Scripture, but not embracing it. We can be in compromise. So whose side are you on? Now, second question. How do we remain on the Lord's side? There's probably a lot of places we could go, but I want to go to this this one verse because we realize that the battle for every Christian living in a pagan society is trying to to live with this unending pressure of the world bearing down on us, with society redefining uh, our our every institution to fit their moral agenda. The question is, how do I remain then on the Lord's side? I would invite you now to, to turn your Bibles. I know it's up on the screen, but turn your Bibles and maybe put a star next to it or something like that. Because this this verse, this little verse in Proverbs, uses the exact same word that we have in our text today. And it's the word loose. And in in Proverbs 29, verse 18, it's not translated loose. It's translated something else. It's translated cast off restraint. Now, of course, if you have a King James, you're, you're, you're a mess right now with this verse because it's It's confusing. Because it says, where there is no vision, the people you know, cast off restraint. And, and the vision that's being talked about there is what we find here. I'm in the ESV. Where there is no prophetic vision. What is a prophetic vision? It is when God speaks to his prophet to his people. It is his very word. So get this. Here's what it's saying. When there is no prophetic vision, when there is no revelation of the word of God The people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. So do you see what it's teaching here? Possibly even referring back to our text. When God's people abandon the revealed word of God, they cast off restraint. They literally run wild. They literally let their moral hair down. For those who keep the law, those who value God's revealed word, will be blessed. So here, this is a very simple Sunday school answer, but there's a reason it's a Sunday school answer. is because it's so critical. Scripture says it over and over and over again. The answer to remaining in the, in the Lord's side is at least being faithful to place ourselves under the word of God. Now, friends, there's a reason why we gather on a Sunday morning. And it can be for all the wrong reasons. But one of the reasons that God reveals through his word that we gather together 
is to place ourselves, not under my teaching, but to place ourselves under the teaching of the word of God. And we need it constantly. Not periodically. Constantly. Why? Because our very nature is to run loose, is to run wild, is to be unrestrained. It is the word of God having its freedom on us week after week in our devotions, in our, in our Bible studies. All of that is helping us to restrain what is in us that wants to run wild and do its own thing. And when the, the people of God ignore the word of God, Is it any surprise that their morality changes? And they they begin to function and think and act just like the world around them. I'm sure there's more that could be said here. But friends, understand the importance of the word of God being in your life. Hearing it, receiving it, meditating on it, loving it. This is all a means by which God has instituted for you to say, look, Here's how you remain. Be in my word. Humble yourself under it. Listen to it. Sit under the preaching of God's word. And it may not necessarily be on a a thing that you need at that particular moment, but it's God at work restraining you. Friends, we need this. Israel ignored it. They heard directly from God. And they chose to ignore what God said, to violate what God said, and to do what they wanted. And as a result, they are judged. And if it were not for Moses and his intercession and his mediation, they would suffer even greater than the suffering we read here. God in his kindness for us has given us his son. His son now bears the wrath of that you and I deserve. You get that? That sin is still costly. That sin still has consequences. That sin still needs to be atoned for. And it is his son that is not only the sacrifice, but he is the substitute who bears the wrath that you and I deserve. Sin is serious. And we've seen this morning how the mediator confronts the sinfulness of sin. But the story's not over yet. There's more to come. There's restoration. There's reconciliation. And there's joy even for Israel. Lord, help us today as we consider what it is that you want to teach us through your word, that we would place ourselves willingly under it, that we would listen to it, that we would be humble before it, that we would allow it to have its work and its way. Lord, we know that your word is quick and sharp and powerful to penetrate our hearts and get to those places to expose the sin that is there. Lord, help us not to fight against that. Help us to be willing to receive that. Because, Lord, through that, not only are you restraining us, but you are conforming us to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to take what's been revealed in this passage to heart. And Lord, to be determined with your strength to place ourselves continually under your word, to be mindful of our tendency to drift, to follow, uh, Lord, just in the ways that we would just be 
loose with our morals. Well, help us to be thankful for the way that you, through your word, ministers to us by restraining us. And then, Lord, ultimately, Lord, we just we want to praise you for sending your son to die for us and to bear the wrath that we deserve. Give us strength. Give us wisdom. Strengthen us, Lord, we ask in your name. Amen.